And there's a bit on the back page of the service sheet to draw if that helps you with listening. And I wonder if the things you could draw today would be a snake slithering on the ground, eating the dust. You could draw one of those Russian dolls, you know, which has a smaller one inside and then a smaller one inside. See if you can draw that. And another thing you can draw is someone working very hard and mopping their brow. So let's pray with the Bible open in front of us. Father God Almighty, thank you. You tell us the truth. That you love us and draw us out from the messes that we get ourselves into. Please, will we hear the love, compassion, gentleness and kindness in everything you say to us this morning through Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in his name we now ask. Amen. What does it take for us to switch from thinking, this is terrible, to, well, at least we know where we are. The passage we've had read today has been the subject of centuries of anger and rebellion among all kinds of people from all the nations of the world. It gives us an explanation for suffering. But a lot of people prefer to just ditch the whole Christian thing when they hear this explanation. This passage talks about the curse. There is one. It explains why things can get so horrible in a world that still has so much good in it. The thing we'll have that bad news reaction to comes when a common misconception is overturned. Many people do say now the reason bad things happen in the world is because bad people do bad things. But that's not what this says. It says everyone suffers from a curse of the whole earth before they do anything, just by being born. Verse 17, Jesus speaking to Adam, representing all of humanity. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. challenge for us today is to see this as an unavoidable part of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we get stuck in, this is terrible, we won't know where we actually stand as human beings. And we won't be able to benefit from Jesus or from church. So verses 14 to 18 Jesus' curse is only broken by itself. Jesus' curse is only broken by itself. Jesus remains unchanged by the man and the woman's decision to try life without him. We wanted to know good and evil, so Jesus shows us the curse which comes with evil. We're deliberately choosing to seek and be what he is not. 
But he also shows how that curse will be cursed. How the very thing that brings pain and suffering and death will ultimately be turned against itself. So let's look at each bit of it in turn. Jesus talks to the serpent first. And the serpent doesn't get a chance to explain himself, unlike Adam and Eve. Angels, heavenly beings created to serve Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are not like humans. They have bodies, but they don't bear Jesus' image or likeness. The curse of the serpent sets the pattern for the curse being part of the good news rather than the opposite. The devil succeeded in allying the woman and ultimately the man to this rebellion of undoing creation. The direction of travel of the cosmos is back towards that formless and emptiness that we saw in the very second verse of the Bible. The darkness. The moment they ate that fruit, that was where everything is going back to. By doing that, the devil succeeds in undoing what God made good. The initial sin took place in heaven, the realm of meaning. This guardian cherub, remember the rest of the Bible tells us that's what this creature was, was able to travel freely from heaven to earth and back again as part of that bridge established in paradise of Eden between heaven and earth. So the way things stand, the purity and glory and holiness of heaven is compromised. There's an anti-God force next to the throne of heaven. But we're not going to have a yin and yang universe. Jesus doesn't have a shadow side. Unlike Batman, he doesn't have to have a joker to be all who he is. Sorry if that went over your head. You know, you get the idea. He doesn't have to have an arch nemesis in order to do everything that he wants to do. He can, in him, there is no darkness at all. So this rebellious angel gets cast down to the earth. And when he's there, he goes even lower. That's what the symbolism of him crawling on his belly is. He's got to look right, he's a few centimetres away from it for the rest of his life. And snakes are like a picture reminding us of that. The only damage this rebellious angel is ever going to be able to do is down here. The kingdom of the air, as it's called elsewhere in the Bible. But, okay, so that's, that's kind of good. At least heaven's protected. But as things stand... He can still just gather an army of people ready to mess everything up down here. Even if the wider cosmos is protected from unraveling chaos, this world seems to be completely at its mercy. So now we get the most powerful repeat of that word, logic, logos, that brought everything to being in Genesis 1. Jesus separates again. He divides, verse 15, just like between light and dark, dry ground and sea. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your, you've got to say seed, not offspring, your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Remember, the woman and the serpent are friends at the moment. She likes the way he thinks. She's just taken his advice. So Jesus steps in and says, no, you are enemies. Any fleeting flirtation throughout the story of humanity will not gain ultimate traction. There is now a fundamental difference between being human and being totally evil. 
When humans do evil from now on, it won't be in service of the devil as enthusiastic servants. It will only be as temporary slaves, overpowered, but not united. In fact, the hostility is so great that a woman, and notice this, without a man, will eventually give birth to a seed, potential, something that dies to bring life, who will do for the devil forever. The one who brings the curse is cursed. Just at the time all is lost, Jesus turns the power of his enemy against himself. And notice this is the first thing he does when confronted with us saying we hate him. At the moment of the serpent's triumph, he has literally sown the seed of his own destruction. We'll look more at that in verses 20 to 21 for the second point. But now moving on from the curse on the serpent, we need to see the consequences for the woman and the man, and by extension for all of us. Important to notice, Jesus does not curse the man or the woman themselves. We are not cursed. But he does introduce things to our experience that mean we're surrounded by curse and by pain. There are two things the woman will now participate in on earth that will point forwards to the final overturning of the reign of the devil. Marriage and having children. She will be married, ultimately, in a cosmic way. We'll talk about that later. And she will give birth to a child that will destroy the devil. Today, we rightly celebrate these two things that particularly women get to participate in. And there's just one thing mentioned that the man will share in that looks forward to the restored creation. Work. It's not saying men don't get involved in children and women don't work. It's just saying particularly those two things are focused on on those two genders. Jesus has decreed the only way to fix this broken world from the inside is by himself becoming a man through being born of a woman. So we are involved in the way to fix everything. But the dilemma comes precisely from that. Because Jesus has said, you're going to be involved. I'm going to do business with you. Even though we've said we don't want that. Because Jesus does involve us, men and women, our temptation as humans will be to think that our marriages, our children, or our work can solve everything on their own. We see that to a profound extent in our society today. Love is all you need. Oh, actually... If I get the dream job, if I find the one and start a family, my problems will be over. I can die happy. People say that, don't they? Or you have a gym in the office, so your work can be your life. Jesus has an infinitely bigger future for us than that tiny reality that compromises with death. Jesus is about destroying death, not making peace with it. So those three things that hold most promise for us rediscovering heaven on earth, 
without him must be exposed for how limited they really are. They will have pain. Whatever we do, however much we advance as a society, our marriages, families and careers or retirement projects will not go the way we plan. Those first two will be the means by which the universe is saved. And the last one will have meaning through church, but only through great pain. Because life without Jesus means pain. And that's where all of us are born and where all of us live now. We know, don't we, the purpose of pain in the body is to tell us something's not right. It's the purpose in marriage and childbirth and work too. The fact that in the end, a woman will give birth to the saviour of humanity without any help from man will mean she's tempted to say men are worthless. And it will mean men will be tempted to take out their insecurity on women by dominating them. That's verse 16. It's vital to see here that the gender pay gap, toxic masculinity, trans confusion, sexual violence, domestic abuse, workaholism, office bullying, worker exploitation, that's just normal life unless Jesus intervenes. Those all happen when we try to solve the inherent pain in these things on our own, refusing to heed the warning that the pain gives that this stuff is not right, it's broken. We need to notice where we are, particularly with this issue, with our idolatry of marriage that we talked about two weeks ago, our idolatry of sex and our idolatry of work as the way that everything will be put right. The horrific exploitation of humans bearing Jesus' image in pornography or zero-hour contracts. The terrible confusion of so many young people so that they swear off sex for fear of being abused or being accused of being an abuser. The utter separation of sex from the sacrifice of having children. The removal of sex from any idea of self-giving commitment that's painful and costs something. The feeling of futility that lurks even in the most fulfilling career. All of that is hardwired into life in rebellion against Jesus. Just as we think we're most free with the industrial and sexual revolutions, by throwing off all the order and pattern handed down for work, for sex and marriage and celibate single life, we're really opening ourselves up to the chaos and slavery of the curse. At least we know where we are. Jesus' curse is only broken by itself. Now, more briefly, Jesus shows us how. So verse 19 to 21. Jesus kills death with death. Jesus kills death with death. Okay, I've got a puzzle for you. I'm not going to give you too long to think about it. Rachel and Monica have moved into a shared house with several other occupants. Monica doesn't like their new accommodation, though, because of the angry and aggressive cat that greeted them when they first walked in. Rachel realises there isn't really a problem. Why? Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. 
Okay, a few more seconds. Boom. Okay. Uh, Monica is a cat. And she's seen herself in the mirror. Uh-huh, there we go. You see that? Uh, so even though stories and conundrum things show us how deeply this pattern of the only thing strong enough to destroy it is itself is woven into reality from the beginning. Jesus' ultimate way of crushing the head of the serpent, of turning the curse against itself, will be through the devil's greatest weapon, the thing he tricked Eve into welcoming into the world, through death. This is mentioned as the last part of the curse on the man. That's why we stopped at verse 18. So verse 19, by the sweat of the brow, you'll have to eat food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. This is the final disintegration of the beautiful connection between heaven and earth that Jesus created in man. The spirit, the meaning of our existence leaves. If any of you have seen a dead body, you, you know it's just, it's just reorganized earth, isn't it? The person's gone. This is what pain points towards, the fact that all of us are heading in that direction. However much we manage to avoid or ignore it, death is there. But Adam has heard verse 15, so he does something astounding. He names his wife, life. Zoe, that's the Greek for it. Eve is the Hebrew for it. Life. She isn't the mother of the dying. She's the mother of the living Death won't win. Motherhood has eternal purpose. We're not just continuing this endless cycle of birth and death. Jesus sets up a pattern that all of us recognize. To protect us from death, Jesus clothes us with death. So verse 20 and 21. The first death Adam and Eve experience is not their own. It's the animals which die so their nakedness can be clothed. They're protected from death through death. Jesus establishes how the seed of the woman, himself when he becomes a man, will deal with the broken curse of their exposed nakedness. There are no half measures. There's no bargaining with this way of half-life into which all of us are born. It's got to die. And that sets up another pattern for the last bit. Verse 22 to 24, Jesus' judgment is mercy. Jesus' judgment is mercy. If the garments of skin give the picture, the next words and actions of Jesus spell out the reality. So we've had the curse explaining what life is like for us now. All of us recognise that life. And Jesus said that life will not be allowed to go on forever. Praise God. Jesus condemns pain, abuse, pointless work, grief, disease. He hates those things. We don't have to get used to them or understand them as just a part of life. Any more than we have to live with a devil rampaging around and ruining everything. Jesus steps into that endlessly revolving cycle of life swallowed up by death and says, Enough! Humans will not be able to reach out and grab the tree of life so that this meaningless existence can carry on. I, Jesus, will make sure that the only ones who can get back there 
are those who first pass through death. The pattern of human existence is now looking through the consuming, purifying, death-bringing fire, that flaming, revolving sword, into paradise. We don't get to talk to cherubim anymore. They're not our guardians anymore. They act to keep us out. This is the final thing. The two cherubim with fire become the place where we get reconnected back between heaven and earth. That picture, you know, the two cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant and fire on the altar of sacrifice. Every single sacrifice from that moment on, including Jesus' final sacrifice, is about something passing through fire in order to rise like smoke into heaven. Death always happens when that happens. But Jesus has already said one person is going to kill death by dying. Just got a final thing. I'm going to do a Michael Caine impression. Not, not the famous one, okay? You have to imagine him looking severe. I'm not very good at looking severe. And he's standing in front of Bob Cratchit's door at the end of Christmas Carol. And he says, Bob Cratchit, you were not at work this morning, as we agreed. But, but sir, it was Christmas Day. I know. Because of this terrible dereliction of duty, I am about to raise your salary. Do you remember that? We can't have a mega happy ending with nothing bad in it. But Jesus turns that moment of fear into a moment of mercy, of goodness, of saving us. Jesus' death curse is only broken by itself. Jesus kills death with death. And Jesus' judgment is mercy. Let's pray.